This is Food First Michigan on News Talk 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food secure state, and by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome back and thanks for listening. Dr. Craig Gunderson is an ACES Distinguished Professor at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And he is our guest today. ACES longtime listeners of the show will recall means adverse childhood experiences. And certainly not having enough food or the right food is a traumatic experience for anyone, let alone a child. Childhood food insecurity rates were unacceptable prior to the pandemic and are absolutely disturbing now. In Michigan alone, we have almost doubled the number of children who are food insecure since March. From approximately 300,000 in early March to now over 600,000. How do we know this? We know this from the efforts with data and research. We know this because of the life work of our guest today and introducing Dr. Craig Gunderson to you as an esteemed ACES Distinguished Professor just seems right. A distinguished professor for sure, a researcher and creator of one of the primary tools used by the Feeding America Network to understand who is hungry, who is food insecure in our nation and our state. Dr. Craig Gunderson is the creator of the Map the Meal Gap tool used by our food banks that help us answer the pivotal questions of who needs help, how much help do they need, and for how long. The Map the Meal Gap tool helps guide our efforts to get the right food to the right people at the right time in the right way. Dr. Gunderson joins Jerry and me next here on Food First Michigan. Welcome, everyone. As promised, Jerry Brisson joins me with Dr. Craig Gunderson. And, Craig, welcome to Food First Michigan. This is your first time on our show. I cannot believe it took us yeah. this long to get you. Well, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Looking forward to our conversation. Well, that, it's going to be a great conversation today. And, uh, of course, your impact and influence across the Feeding America Network, across the United States of America, is profound. And so the first thing I think we want to do to start this show is to, is to say to you personally, thank you for how you've invested your one handful of life and in, in the impact that it's had across this work as we stand in the gap together for those who are suffering under the toxic stress of food insecurity. So, thank you. Well, thank you for those kind words. It's an honor to be working alongside people like you and Jerry doing the actual work. I just sit behind a computer and do the analysis, so I really do appreciate the work that you all do. Well, well start us off and tell us, tell us the Craig Gunderson story. How did you get here and how did you uh, come to this place where you're, you're having such an impact on uh, folks across America who are, again, struggling with, with food insecurity and all that you do? And there's a more formal introduction of you that's in my monologue, but, but I want you to tell your story. 
Okay. So is, I mean, just going back to when I was uh, at the undergraduate University of Notre Dame, and while there, I became very interested in issues pertaining to, to poverty. Um, and then I just decided, like, how best, how best can I use talents that I may or may not have? And I decided to go into economics. And then between college and graduate school, I uh, worked, lived and worked at a, a Catholic worker house, Casa Juan Diego in Houston, Texas. We had a house in Houston and a house in Matamoros right over the border. And then I went to graduate school. And then my dissertation actually was on housing poverty. But I ended up working for USDA when they were rolling out their food security measure. And I've been working, I worked at USDA, then at Iowa State, and I've been at University of Illinois since 2008. And over that time period, is it's you know, concentrated on the causes and consequences of food insecurity on the evaluation of food assistance programs with an emphasis on SNAP. So there is so much to say about the need for a clearer understanding of the impact of our work. I think that when you look at the history of food banking and the history of um, the, the organizations that have been involved in direct service to people, especially on the food side, what you find is a lot of kindness, a lot of concern, and not a lot of data. And, and in the short run, that's a great thing. It's, it's beautiful to care for people. It's important. It's, what makes our, it's part of what makes our community healthy and strong is that desire to make a difference, even one-on-one -on -one in people's lives. But when you're trying to understand how many people are getting served and how many aren't, and how do you take care of everyone? How do you create systems where everyone can benefit from food security? That's when you really have to understand the data. And I liked what you said, Dr. Gunderson, about it's, it's, really, um, it's really looking at what, what are the causes and effects of both food security and then the programs trying to solve them. And I think one of the things that we're really interested in as we look at education, as we look at healthcare, as we look at um, even you know population health as an overarching costly thing we have to manage because we don't solve this problem, how do we create more convincing ideas for legislators and for, for you know, decision makers it, both in, you know, public service, but also in, you know, the, the, the healthcare system or the education sector to say, gosh, you know, it really would be cheaper and better if we just took this issue off the table. So with that as kind of a backdrop, how do you see your work intersecting with these bigger ideas of creating these systems that are more robust and appropriate? Right. So, no, I mean, so, so here's my take on a lot of these issues pertaining to food insecurity. I mean, you know, we project that due to COVID is that food insecurity rates are going to rise by about 50 percent versus 2019. So we have a serious health care crisis in the United States pertaining to food insecurity. But one thing I really, really want to emphasize is food insecurity was a huge issue, as you both know, long before COVID. And it's going to be a huge issue long after COVID. So in other words, as I'm, while I'm pleased about the amount of attention being paid to, co to food security now, food insecurity now, is that you know, this is issues a timeless issue in our country. And so I really want to emphasize that. Now, whenever I talk about this is I mentioned, whenever I talk about food insecurity, the first thing I emphasize is that for the two of you and all the other wonderful people working in food banks in Michigan and across the country, is you all want to, we, we want to decrease food insecurity because there's something tragic about children going to bed hungry. There's something tragic about seniors not knowing where their next meal is coming from. For some people, that may not be enough of an emphasis. Therefore, I emphasize the second thing is, is we have serious 
health consequences associated with food insecurity in the United States. There's a large, robust literature that across from children up to seniors is really the really, really serious health consequences associated with food insecurity. And this is why I call food insecurity the leading healthcare crisis in terms of nutrition in our country. Mm -hmm. We really, really need to address this. Now, from being above itself, we want to address food insecurity and do these health consequences. But the other thing I emphasize is that there's serious healthcare costs associated with food insecurity. We estimate that approximately the additional cost due to food insecurity in the United States for healthcare costs alone, for adults alone, is about $60 billion a year. Okay? So health, so food insecurity, along with just the major damages it's done across so many different areas, is at least a higher healthcare cost. So in terms of coming back to some of these systems issues you talked about, by addressing food insecurity, we had we really address so many other problems in our society. This is why, at base, any discussion about the well-being of our society has to begin with discussions about food insecurity. I wish our well, maybe listeners that's what... could see your hands moving. It's <laughs> awesome, man. It's awesome. Yeah, well, maybe that's why we call the show Food First, Michigan. Yeah. You know, yeah. because it, it really is the no. I mean, in, in my mind, it's, it's the it's the first step toward people achieving self sufficiency. Exactly. And if we can, you know, if we can take hunger off the table, then people's minds are going to be free to that toxic stress, so that they can can begin to work on things, other challenges, or as Jerry likes to say, it gives them the opportunity to find their next success. Right. So, exactly. Hey, guys, let's take a quick break. We're going to come back. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here, Dr. Craig Gunderson, the ACES Distinguished Professor at the University of Illinois, Urbana, in Champaign. And so we're all three back in just a minute for another segment. You come back and be with us, too. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for being with us. Dr. Craig Gunderson, Jerry Brisson, me, Dr. Phil Knight. We're here with you on WJR and our podcast, Food First Michigan. We're thankful to have Dr. Gunderson with us. Um, so we got a little background story there. We got a little bit of the philo philosophical there, which is, you know, definitely my realm of thinking, and I'm, I'm much appreciative to it. Let, let's talk about some of the down and dirty right there, because, uh, Dr. Gunderson, we had you come to the Food Security Council and talk about essentially who's hungry in Michigan. And uh, you gave a, a presentation to that that I, I would classify, I would use the adjective was startling to many of the people on the Food Security Council. And so maybe let's talk a little bit about, and Jerry, you mentioned earlier the need for data and, you know, uh, charity is, is great and we need it and that's our foundation, but we know that we can't scale charity to meet this problem. So maybe let's tie these two themes together here somehow. And Dr. Gunderson, you dive in first. Okay, so let me first talk a little bit about the determinants of food insecurity, and then hopefully we'll have some time to talk about some of the solutions. Um, we could spend a full you know, series of podcasts talking just about determinants of food insecurity. The first thing I'd emphasize is that there's a lot of differences across our population in terms of both the probability the probability of somebody being food insecure and the, um, and the subsequent consequences associated with that. So one way to look at this, for example, in the state of Michigan, for those who are interested, is something called map the meal gap, 
where you can go to every county in um, Michigan and see what the extent of food insecurity is in those counties. If you just Google map and you look at it, you go there. Now, within these areas, though, is there's a great deal of differences in terms of somebody's probability of food insecurity. So a lot of people think it's only poor people who are food insecure. That's just not true, is that due to the resourcefulness and other things of poor people in the United States, it's about 70% are food secure. So we have to move beyond just poverty as the sole determinant. Um, and so I always try to emphasize a few things about who is more likely to be um, food insecure. First is that there's a sharp racial divide within a lot of our places across the uh, United States. For example, if you look at Wayne, uh, Wayne County, which of course is where Detroit is, is it's shocking about all the zip codes with very high rates of food insecurity. They're all majority black zip codes, whereas the areas with lower rates of food insecurity are all majority white. So this racial disparity in terms of black-white differences really does manifest itself, especially some of the larger counties in um, Michigan. A second determinant that I like to emphasize is that oftentimes we overlook young people in our society is those between 18 and 25 who are not in college. In other words, non-college students who are starting out their careers and starting out their lives really are at great risk of food insecurity. So that's another group we, we oftentimes overlook. The third and most important group that I think we need to pay a lot more attention to are those with disabilities. Disability status is the leading indicator of food insecurity in the United States. And this makes sense, is for a lot of people with disabilities, is that this makes it more difficult to enter the workforce. And when in the workforce, oftentimes it's more difficult to keep jobs and stuff. And this is both physical health disabilities and mental health disabilities that are especially mm. important. And it's also for the full household. So for example, if a parent or caregiver has to care for a child or for somebody else in the household, they're also negatively impacted by this. So I think as a society, we need to be talking more, much more about the serious challenges facing those with disabilities. And this is something I really, and I'll segue into a discussion about food banks, but this is an area where food banks can really play a critical role. I think food banks, as you mentioned earlier, we can't, in some sense, charity won't raise everybody out of food insecurity. But what's great about food banks is you're able to be nimble and quick in addressing issues. This was proven during COVID. And also you can tailor your services in ways, especially for those with disabilities, in other ways that other groups can't. So I wanted to finish with talking a little bit about persons with disability, but then I, I want to turn to the next thing about the solutions to this. First, again, I want to talk about the wonderful work being done by food banks in Michigan and across the country. Is, you know, the, your network of agencies would be, you know, pantries, soup kitchens, and everything else that you all do is, is that there's a lot of people in our society who fall through our safety net cracks. And there's a lot of people fall through those cracks and they have nowhere else to turn except for the wonderful services you provide. There's also another group of Americans who are ineligible for food assistance programs and they have nowhere else to turn to but all of you. I mean, this really manifests itself during COVID. There's a lot of people who lost their jobs unexpectedly, right. had nowhere else to turn except to the good work of all of you. But as you said, food banks are not enough. And I think that you all will be in agreement, I know Feeding America's agreement, the most critical component of our efforts to alleviate food insecurity is SNAP, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, formerly known as the food stamp program. I love SNAP. I'm not going to be with somebody who's going to be um, justifying every government program, but from my perspective, SNAP is the most successful government program we have. It alleviates, its central goal is to alleviate food insecurity, and study after study after study has shown that it does achieve that goal. It's an enormously successful program. And it does so for three main reasons. The first reason is, is that 
this can be a generous program. For various reasons, I think it could be a much more generous program where we could talk about some of those policy um, additions I would make. But it is a generous program for a family of four. The maximum benefit level is $8,400 a year. I think that's a not insubstantial amount of money, but it really does provide a lot of assistance. The second thing is it's an, uh, it's an entitlement program. And so far as the government budget automatically expands in order to meet the needs of those who, who, who need, it, sir, need to receive SNAP. It doesn't require the administration, it doesn't require Congress to approve more money. It's automatic, and that's really good. And the third component of this, and I think that this is the most important. It's hard being poor in our country. And as you both know so well, there's so many people that look down upon those who are struggling. They say, oh, it's your fault, or all these other things. But I think oftentimes, is sometimes in a society, we can be patronizing and condescending towards poor people and treat them as like, here's how you should do things. The reason I love SNAP is when people get their SNAP benefit is they're able to go to a food store alongside their neighbors and their family members and go shopping and they get to make their own decisions about what's best for them and their family. In other words, SNAP treats recipients with dignity and autonomy. So for these three reasons, A, the size of the program, its um, entitlement status, and most importantly that it treats its recipients with dignity and autonomy, make me a huge fan of this program. So SNAP, in combination with all of you, especially if we expanded SNAP and expanded your services, we really could alleviate food insecurity in our country. So one of the things I want to respond to is the integration between those systems, right? So the way I think about food banking in terms of how it fits the solution is there's a lot of very low-cost food that's very healthy and appropriate for people to have that's available consistently just because of the way the, the food supply chain works. There's always going to be some food out there that farmers aren't going to sell, but they're going to grow. And, and, and there's a lot of it. It's in the tens of billions of pounds of food that's sitting out there that makes food accessible at a very low cost. Now, when you combine the opportunity to capture that food and provide it to people in also dignified ways, right, to make things convenient and work for people, very critically important, with what they can get with their SNAP dollars, it really allows for an integrated system where people can get everything they need at the lowest possible cost. Right. So when we look at solving the problem and we think about the return on investment that we get, when we think about this very large-scale public-private partnership, right, you can start to imagine that, that, it's, that a food-secure community is possible. And when you add to that the number of winners when this problem is solved, and we talked about healthcare and the cost of healthcare, well, what that means is who's paying for that healthcare? Right. It's coming out of our taxes. It's coming out of business taxes. It's coming out of actually what businesses pay because a lot of their employee benefits are healthcare related. Right. And if, they're, if their uh, employees are food insecure, they're not only suffering from the consequences of that in the work environment, they're also suffering it from it in terms of higher premium payments for healthcare. So it the the insidious nature of this is that we're all paying and there's so many winners. Education wins, healthcare wins, businesses win, right? So so by by really showing not only the impact on these households and the elimination of the suffering that goes with food insecurity, but also the financial benefit to the whole community, you begin to go isn't it ridiculous that we haven't solved this yet? I mean, how is it that we haven't just said enough? Right. 
No, I I'm in, I'm in complete agreement with your, what you're saying. I really want to emphasize that point you're talking about. We're paying for this. Is we're paying for it. A lot of the recipients, I mean, a lot of food insecure households are on Medicaid or Medicare. That's coming out of our tax dollars. But as you also mentioned, you know, these the food insecure population are a large proportion of them are in the are, are working, and so therefore they're getting health insurance to their jobs, and those premiums are higher if they're food insecure. Absolutely, much agreed. But as great as SNAP is, and as great as food banking is, and as integrated as they can be and should be, I'm going to go back to a foundational issue, which is the federal poverty measure that prohibits so many people from being eligible for these programs. And until we fix that, I'm afraid that we're we're paddling upstream, and I won't name the creek that we're in. But... (laughs) That's pretty much where we're at, and I think it's a foundational issue. I think it's an issue that the Feeding America National Organization has to grab hold of and take because we've got so many people, and COVID, you said it, Doc, really revealed it. There are people who had made too much money prior to COVID because they were working. Now COVID with the pandemic, they're out of a job, and the only place they can come is to the charitable food network, and that got dumped on us which I'm not complaining, but essentially we doubled our output in a matter of a couple of weeks from 2.6 million to almost 5 million pounds of emergency food distributed a week. And it was going to families who should have been, who could have been, and would have been better off if they'd have been eligible to receive this benefit program. So with that, we got to take a quick break. That's the end of the sermonette right there from me. Dr. Craig Gunderson, Jerry Brisson, me, Dr. Phil Knight. We're back for another segment in just a moment. Food First, Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. Welcome back, everyone. Dr. Phil Knight, Jerry Brisson here every week, as always, on Food First Michigan, both on WJR and on the podcast. Uh, I'm not even going to go into Jerry's Twitter handle because it's just way too complicated, but you can find me at DrPhil14 on Twitter. Do that, follow us, and then I'll connect you to Jerry. So, Jerry, uh, what, where are you at here with, with Dr. Gunderson in this show? I know, Doc, you're going to respond to my last little sermonette that I ran off on there. But, Jerry, jump in there real quick. Yeah, I, you know, one of the things I definitely want to get to is some of the practical work we're doing on the ground that Dr. Gunderson has been part of. We're, we're doing a 10-year study of the impact of food security on um, education, and we're also doing a short-term study on the impact of providing groceries to families while schools are closed. And both of those, we have a, a pretty sophisticated group of researchers helping us make the, the, the uh, impacts more um, accurately reflected, right? Make sure we're designing the, 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 the information correctly and, and reporting them correctly so we can have those appropriate proofs. Now, that's all pretty boring and wonky, but at the end of the day, um, we need to get to some understandings of if kids are food secure, does it help their behaviors in school? If schools are providing food security to families, does it help those families have better connections to schools? And it does it make people feel better about how they interact with each other? Do those feelings then result in a greater likelihood that kids will actually graduate from school, right? So we're really talking about 
fundamentally impacts in the community that we know are true, but we have to prove are true. So I definitely want to get to that. But before then, Dr. Gunnison, why don't you give us your reaction to, uh, to Dr. Phil's ideas about the poverty measure? Yeah, so I mean, here's my take is, so we think about, again, back to what I said earlier, is that we oftentimes think of poverty as being all poor people are food insecure and all non-poor people are food secure. That's just not true. For, and this is part of our problem with our poverty measure. There's lots of people above the poverty line who really are struggling, and but they're not eligible for any of these food assistance programs. I mean, let's come back to this issue of disability. People with disabilities face a lot of real serious challenges, but they may, may or may not be poor, and therefore they fall through the cracks for a lot of these programs. So one of the things that my others and myself are pushing for is to set the, the we may or may not be able to change the poverty line, but at least we can begin to say that we need to recognize that there's a lot of other struggling people in our society. So setting the SNAP threshold at a higher level and for other programs to really bring more people into the social safety net, which can help us um, address issues pertaining to food insecurity. So along with expanding SNAP benefits, I think it's also important that we think about raising the threshold for which people are eligible for these programs to get around the problem, the fact that there's lots, tens of millions of Americans who are struggling who may not be poor. So awesome. So now let's let's go from there to what are some of the things that you're seeing in terms of how we're learning about the impact of actually solving the problem? What are we learning and, and what do you see coming down the, the pipeline in terms of projects and, and um, research issues that, you're, um, that really excite you and kind of get your blood going? Okay, so and we can again have a long discussion about this, but I want to come back to what you had said at the at the outset is that is that talking about education and food insecurity i love it when people draw those two things together because what we know is we know that children who come to school hungry or don't have enough food during the day are at more serious risk of not doing well in school and we know that if they don't do well in school is that this will have lifetime consequences. And I think that things going on during COVID really, I mean, one of the things about, I should say this is a good thing about COVID, but I think it really has pointed out a lot of these challenges. And it's great the way the food banks have stepped in to provide lunches to students when they're not able to, not in school, because schools are shut down and everything. But I think mm -hmm. that maybe this will raise awareness that kids going hungry is a really serious issue in, in our communities. I also think COVID also has pointed out one other thing is, you know, that um, a lot of the kids run in schools, and we've seen some evidence, at least in some areas, where online learning just really hasn't been quite as good for the children as they might, especially for the for some of our more vulnerable children. And it just points to all the other challenges that these children face in their lives. And but the thing is, is at least if we can make sure that they have three square and healthy meals a day, that's really critical to putting them on the right path. So I can't emphasize enough. Back to what you were saying is, is that. Right. We want our children to be well-educated, and while it's not a sufficient condition, it's a necessary condition that they be well-fed. I think one of the things that Jerry's talking about in regard to some of the, the particularly the long-term study that, that Gleaners is involved in, um, one of the things, uh, you know, without you know, manipulating the research, so to speak, one of the things I expect for it to prove is that the, the addition of food, emergency food, into the household creates stability. 
In other words, if they don't have to make a trade-off that you mentioned earlier, that means the kid's going to be in that school district longer. Because when they have to cha make those trade-offs and they have, okay, this month we can't pay the rent, so we got to move over to grandma's, and that means that's in another school district, and that's so disruptive to the process. But even more fundamentally than that, something we say on the show quite a bit, Doc, is that if they're not well-fed, they'll never be well-read. Right. So third-grade reading law, third-grade reading level in Michigan is a law. It's a law. Right. So I mean, it's it's got to be it, you've got to meet this standard, and we also we all know from the studies that third grade reading level is one of the best predictors of graduation rates. So I and, and then if you want to tie it even further down the road to workforce development, my God, it's so much cheaper to solve this problem now right. than it is later. Right. So I'll get you two experts to uh, drop in on my my other little. My, you know, mantra there. So, no, so, we love your soapbox, doctor. Yeah. We love it. It's awesome. Right. Yes. And we agree with the soapbox. So, I guess there's a couple of, I mean, to coming back to this is back to this notion about food as being a necessary condition for children to succeed. Is that even though, so on the one hand, is if people have food, that at least mitigates some of these other serious challenges they face. But also having enough food will also prevent them from do, dealing with other challenges. So, for example, if you know that you have a steady source of food, that makes it easier to pay the rent. If you have a steady source of food, that makes it easier to address a lot of these other challenges that households are facing. And I really like this emphasis upon food insecurity. Because study after study has shown that <clears throat> food insecurity leads to worse health outcomes, worse education outcomes, even after controlling for income. So coming back to this, making this is there are income tie-ins to this. But again, is it really, we see over and over again, it's really a profound issue of food insecurity. So we can't assume that all households with incomes, I don't know, $50,000 a year for a family of four, we can't assume those households are food secure, especially if they're saying with a disability in the house or other challenges, they may be food insecure. Conversely, there's a lot of, there's poor households who are food secure because of all the wonderful work you do and because you're getting it snapped. So in other words, is we have to look beyond just income and look at all these other factors that go into it. And again, the critical importance of being food secure at a, in terms of educational attainment. So your top three things to solve this problem. One, two, three, what are they? First thing that I would think about is I think we really need to pay a lot more attention the issues facing those with disabilities, um, especially mental health challenges. Is we really need to reach out to those and show more compassion and kindness towards those suffering with those things. And I know that the Food Bank Network deals with this every day. That's the first thing. Second thing is continue to support our incredible Food Bank Network across our country, and in particular in Michigan, is with our time, talent, and treasure. It's so, so important, the work that they do for those who are falling through the cracks. They always say, Food banks are some of the most nimble and quick organizations in our country, and they proved it in COVID, but they also proved it many, many, many other times pre-COVID, and I know, I know that they'll do it many, many times post-COVID. Third thing is SNAP, okay? is if we expand eligibility for SNAP, if we um, increase SNAP benefits, and if we make sure that A, people can get onto the program who are eligible, and B, that those who are on the program stay on the program if they are eligible, is we will go a long, long way to addressing food insecurity. So again, helping those with disabilities, continue to support our food banking network, and three, 
let's make SNAP even better than its excellent program it is today. Awesome. Wow, that's awesome. What do you think, Jerry? Well, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, when you look at what people who we serve need and want, that's what they need and want. You know, people mm -hmm. want to make their own choices to the degree possible, but they also know that if they have a steady source of food in their community through pantry networks and other places that they trust and feel good about going to, that the combination of those benefits solves a lot of problems for a lot of people. Um, I can tell you one of my takeaways from this conversation is to look a little more carefully into what we do specifically with people with disabilities. I know we work with organizations that address that, and, uh, and I'm going to look more carefully into that myself. I mean, certainly we're aware of lots of populations that need help. And uh, and I'm gonna get a little more educated myself. So uh, so every once in a while, uh, you know, I walk away with a to do. How do you like that? <laughs> yeah, like you needed another one, but that yeah. that is a good takeaway right there for sure. Yeah. Dr. Craig Gunderson, um, Aces Distinguished Professor, University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, our partner, our friend, our colleague. Thank you so much for being with us, and I hope that. You enjoyed it enough that you'll come back next time. I would love to come back. Thank you so much for all the great work you do and for thank you for having me on the program today. Jerry and I are back in just a minute to wrap up this edition of Food First Michigan. Thanks for listening, everyone. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here to wrap up this edition of Food First Michigan. Our guest today, Dr. Craig Gunderson, who um, is... I, Jerry, I just have to say he's 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 our partner. He's our colleague. Yeah, he's got a lot of energy for an economist, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you. You know what? We love him. He has been so important to our understanding of this work and helping us really pull together a a very um, oh how do I say this professional way of looking at the research and making sure that we understand the impact of our work in not just a you know story by story way but in an overarching sense of how it changes the fabric of our community when we solve this problem he has been a critical voice in that understanding for years and we owe as you said earlier we really do owe him a debt of gratitude for his work in this area we work with him uh, here at gleaners and I know that he's worked with you statewide, and he's worked with the National Food Bank, Feeding America, and in many, many other ways. So uh, it was a delight and a privilege to have uh, Dr. Gunderson on our program today. Um, what a terrific human being, and uh, it's, it just you know, gives me goosebumps. It really does. Well, Jerry, one of the things that came out in the conversation with Dr. Gunderson is, um, is what, what you refer to as the household impact model. Now, now, he didn't know it in that form, but he really described it throughout the conversation. And it's how do we understand the impact of our work? And, and I'll say it a little different. How do we understand what the impact of the food that we distribute into the household truly means? So why don't you run us through those four components really quick? Yeah, so the first thing is it means income, right? There's an economic benefit. If you give somebody food, they didn't have to buy it. That's like having income. So the economic benefit is the first piece. The second piece is the stability that you talked about. When you take hunger off the table, 
you allow people to manage their rent and their utilities and other things so they can stabilize their situation, stay in their houses longer, and manage other issues. So stability is the next thing. Health is the third thing. We talked about that quite a bit on the show today, the health consequences of being food insecure, and the cost, $60 billion a year in additional cost for health care because we don't solve this problem. When people are that's, food that's secure... That's billion with a B, right? Right, right. And so when people are food secure, they're healthier. That's the next impact. And then the last thing is the, the culmination of economic benefit, stability, and health means that people are more empowered. They can work on something else besides where am I going to get my next meal from. And by empowering people to be able to make other choices and solve other problems, you help them reach their highest level of success, whatever that is. So those are the four aspects of the household impact model. We believe in it. We're going to prove it. That's awesome. Well, thanks for uh, uh, breaking that down for us. It, it's really important. Um, and I, I really do think that that came out of a lot of Dr. Gunderson's um, time with us today. So it, it's just something. I know we talk about it a lot on the show, but, geez, man, it's, it's nice to revisit. Thanks for putting it in such a capsule for us. No, it's time great. for a little food for thought. Who needs help? How much help do they need? And for how long? Vitally important questions to be answered that would give us a great perspective on how to create food security across our state, community by community, household by household. Data tools like Map the Meal Gap, created by our guest today, Dr. Craig Gunderson, and research where we learn in the first person what the lived experience is of those living under the toxic stress of food insecurity is how we take steps one at a time to solve this problem. Insight, understanding, knowledge, and eventually wisdom give us a place where hunger finally comes off the table. And until then, we'll keep it food first, folks. Food first. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.